Hi there, a quick note before we begin the episode. Did you know that Atlas Lingue has its own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life. In this audiobook, we share additional exclusive commentaries on each episode with brand new insights and examples on the subject that we can't stop thinking about, how humans translate everything that comes their way. Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know how everyone was playing Wordle earlier this year and sharing their results on Twitter with the little green and yellow squares? I, of course, was happy to join the hype around this game, and what I loved about it is that to play it, your strategy involves equal parts game theory and language. Because once you rule out letters and letter positions, you also rule out hundreds of word possibilities until you arrive at the most logical one. But word games, of course, aren't the only type of game that incorporates language. If you think about it, every single game involves communication. It's just not always verbal. In chess, we communicate through the pieces we move. In Pictionary, we do it through our drawings, and maybe a couple of silly faces and hand gestures. In Poker, we do it with whatever our face shows, or doesn't show. And in Mario Kart, well, let's just say deploying the blue shell of chaos is certainly one way to test our friendships. Welcome to Atlas Lingue, and in case you haven't figured it out already, in this episode, we're talking about the language of games. Word games, board games, video games, how we talk about them, how we talk through their gameplay, and how getting together to play can be such a powerful way to get to know other people. But before we get into all that juicy stuff about board games and video games, let's go back to word games for a bit for us language nerds. Because I was just talking about Wordle, which is pretty new, but something that's been around for a lot longer is its older cousin, crossword puzzles. Round one, fight. Crosswords are, at least nowadays, a very broad form that you can do a lot of different things with. This is Will Nettiger. He's a professional crossword puzzle creator with a background in linguistics. Um, which is, of course, kind of related to my chosen career path. I've always been interested in words and everything to do with words, and so now I play with words for a living. For a player, Wordle and crossword puzzles offer similar experiences, games based on figuring out words. However, the place where they differ is in how they're created. Wordle is fundamentally pretty simple. You just pick a five-letter word, and the player slowly discovers which one it is. 
but crossword puzzle creation is a whole other art. Filling the grid is usually the bulk of the work because it's sort of geometrically tricky to get all of the words to intersect. Of course, you every square has to be part of both an across word and a downward. So there's an architectural difficulty there. For those of you who don't often solve crossword puzzles, imagine how difficult it can be to fill in a, let's say, three by six square grid, where each row and column is an actual word. Now imagine having to fill several of those and connect them with longer words or phrases. And you can start to see how incredibly complex the creation of a crossword puzzle can become. Fortunately, once you've managed to make the crossword grid work, the next part is easier, and in my opinion, a lot more fun. Writing the clues. There's a lot of things that go into what makes a good clue, I would say. Obviously, the clue has to be accurate. That's sort of like the baseline. The sort of general principle is that the clue is a tool to get the solver there, right? To get the solver to the answer. So whatever is helpful for nudging the solver to the answer is what you need to do in the clue. And it depends on whether you're going for an easy puzzle or a hard puzzle. So if you're doing, for example, an easy puzzle, usually in most newspapers, the Monday puzzles are the easiest ones and it gets harder throughout the week. So if you're doing an easy puzzle, like a Monday puzzle, then you want a really straightforward clue where the, the solver sees the clue and it's like, okay, it must mean this, like a, basically a definition that's extremely clear or something like that. If you're doing, say, a Saturday puzzle, which is designed to be hard, then you want the solver to be able to get there eventually, but they need to be able to work for it. There are other language cues that help find a clue. For example, if the clue has an abbreviation, it generally means that the solution is an abbreviation. Or if a clue has a word in another language, it means the solution is in that language. And there's also my favorite one. When a clue ends in a question mark, it means it's doing a bit of wordplay. So for example, if you had the clue port authority, for example, you know, that might mislead the solver into thinking it's the phrase port authority, you know, like an authority for a seaport. Um, but that clue might be used as a clue for the word sommelier, an expert on wine, right? Because a sommelier is literally an authority on port wine. So you're misleading the solver into thinking that it's one meaning of the word port when it's actually a different meaning that's implied. So you want to mislead the solver, but you want the solver to be able to get there eventually. So when they figure out what the trick that you've used, the clue still has to work as an accurate description of the answer, which it does in this case, like a, a sommelier is an authority on port. A clue like this is super elaborate, and I would argue it's equally satisfying for the constructor and the solver. In fact, we tend to think of crossword puzzles as these very nerdy, analytical, but also sophisticated sort of games, something solved by smart people, or by people who want to seem smart. Because it's different than a Sudoku, for instance, because that game is based on pure logic and playing out different scenarios while crossword puzzles also require you to be knowledgeable about the world, about history, different languages, and even pop culture, TV, movies, music. So it's fascinating to discover that back when they first appeared, crossword puzzles were seen very differently. So the first modern crossword came out in 1913. A guy named Arthur Wynne made it, and it was almost identical to what we would consider a, a standard crossword today, except that it was shaped like a diamond instead of a square. Crosswords were actually a huge fad in the 20s and 30s, 
to the extent that there were like moral panic articles in newspapers and stuff about them warning that it was like a frivolous mindless pastime so people assumed it was like a short-lived fad that would die out but but a lot of people thought it was not salutary at all that it was just sort of like a, a distraction of of no intellectual use whatsoever in fact nowadays the new york times crossword puzzle is the most popular one worldwide but back then even they left on the moral panic around this game and it wasn't until the 1940s that they finally started to publish their own the first editor who started the new york times crossword was was a woman named margaret farrer and she basically wanted to start the crossword as a distraction from the the bad news that was coming out of europe in world war 2 Since then, a statistic that crossword puzzle solvers and constructors like to share is how often a word has been used and when was it first included in a puzzle. It's actually not too different from those lists of words added to the dictionary, like you'll have the first documented inclusion of the word selfie or bay or the abbreviation LMAO. And as we said before, sometimes you even have clues in other languages if they're well known. a cross-lingual word something like deja vu is is the kind of thing that you'll see in crosswords all the time because even though it's a borrowing from french it has in a sense been adopted into english you also pretty commonly see foreign words that are not part of english but are the sort of thing that that your audience might be expected to know and even if the words aren't adopted into english you'll often find clues that refer to other languages for example day before martes is lunes or bread in bordeaux is baguette and so because spanish is an extremely commonly spoken language in america you can get away with using a lot of basic spanish vocabulary even if it's not actually used in english itself just because the audience is going to know it so you you see a lot of basic spanish words and basic french words and you occasionally see some some words in other languages too but then you run into words that logically should be used a lot more but aren't And one of Will's favorite examples is Eid, which refers to the feast that marks the end of Ramadan in Islam, which is like a a, a major holiday in a religion that's practiced by like 2 billion people in the world. But the first time that that entry had been used in the New York Times crossword was like maybe 5 years ago. And it's a three-letter word which has a couple of vowels in it, which is exactly the kind of word that's extremely useful for crossword constructors. because three and four letter words are really really common in grids and vowels especially are really helpful so it's the sort of thing that you would expect to be in crosswords like all the time exactly and that's why words like ado or or are so often used because they're great little words to fill in the remaining parts of a grid but in mainstream crosswords it's been seen extremely rarely and i think that can only be explained in terms of a sort of inertia in thinking about what sorts of you know cultural artifacts can and should be included in grids so because you know people decades ago weren't using eid in their crosswords a lot of constructors just didn't think of using it because they weren't sort of thinking outside of their experience so i think it's it's really important to try and step outside of your experience to think about what sorts of things you could include a crossword puzzle is ultimately the best example of one of the most interesting aspects of games verbal clues An essential part of the gameplay is in figuring them out and solving the puzzle using the letters from other answers for clues as well. But this happens in all sorts of games, 
including one of the most ancient categories of them, board games. What's a board game? That's a very difficult question because there's no definite answer, but we can think of certain characteristics, such as a board, dice, and a gameplay that involves several people. This is Jeremias Juarez, but we call him Jere for short. He's one of the producers at Studio Ochenta. You can find him producing Ochenta Cuentos, along with a lot of other fiction shows that we work on here. But he's also a huge board game connoisseur, and the host of Lanzar Los Dados, a YouTube channel all about board games. Not all games have to come in a box or already be printed, and you don't always have to buy them. Sometimes they can be made at home, but as long as it's a game and we can play it, I think we can consider it a board game. Hedda says that what's fascinating about board games is that the communication within them varies constantly, but there is always some form of understanding among all the players. For example, if you were playing a Monopoly, which is a game where we have to buy properties and etc., we are all going to speak to a common language. We are going to say, I'm buying this property, in this avenue, etc. And so, we share a language. I mean, for better or worse, a lot of us learned a lot about how money works by playing Monopoly. Now that we think of it, we should have used it as an example in our episode on the language of money. Check it out, by the way. We didn't talk about Monopoly, but we do talk about the cereal aisle at the grocery store, and it's a lot of fun. But anyway, back to board games. Hedda says there are games that don't really require a shared language. For example, most games try to be as simple and universal as possible. So you don't need to speak French, English, Spanish, Italian, or any other language to play them. They make things simple by using universal symbols, and they come with rule books in many languages so that most people can understand the game. And then there are the more interesting examples, where speaking is either limited or completely forbidden, so players have to find other ways to communicate. I can think of games like The Mind or Magic Maze. In The Mind, for example, you have to present the cards from low to high, but without talking to each other. So we deduce the gestures of our partners and try to find a group rhythm to place those cards. I find it super interesting how we can play with language when we play a board game. The different forms of nonverbal communication in games fascinates me because they can also be a part of a game strategy. And here's where we get a few terms that come from games, but that we use in our everyday life such as bluffing or poker face. For example, there is a game called Codenames, another classic, where there are two teams and two leaders, and the leaders give clues and they are listening to the teams deliberate, but it is important that the two leaders stay serious and do not show any emotion, literally a poker face. Board games often imply non-verbal gestures, especially the ones where you have to lie, like when you have to pretend that you're doing well or doing poorly to deceive others. I remember my uncles and my grandfathers being very good at lying, much better than any app or software. <laughs> my grandfather was an expert manipulator in games, a sort of Kasparov of lying, so I think board games must essentially have to do that social and human element. 
This leads us to what is perhaps the key component of board games, the social element. The game itself may or may not be played on an actual tabletop, but gathering to play a game is a universal experience. If you think about it, when you were a kid, you play all the time with strangers, and those strangers become friends. When you play board games, especially as an adult, you end doing the same. You make new friends by sharing a common interest. Hede, have you ever designed a board game yourself? Not yet. And I say that because I might the future you never know. But something that I do, and that many people do constantly, is changing the rules of the game. This is what we call home rules. This was part of the motivation behind Jerez channel, Lanzar los Dados, to use board games as a way to build a community. Lanzar los Dados is a YouTube channel where we will talk about board games in Argentina. It all started because two friends of mine, Fede and Bernie, who are very fond of internet and online culture, invited me to create this channel because they knew I love the game so much. And as important thing is that we choose to speak to a community that hasn't played board games yet. We know a lot of people who are huge fans of board games and we could have made our content for them. But instead, we decided to speak uh, to a community that is still discovering this world. Who felt that curiosity we have all felt at some point. The, the idea is to show them this universe one game at a time. One of the ways that we can spark that curiosity in new players and keep the game interesting for more experienced ones is in creating immersive storytelling. That's another key element of language in board games and it's used for narrative purposes, or scene setting. And the idea of storytelling in games is of course shared by another huge category, video games. When people study video game design, they will often study the mechanics of board games, because these games use elements that can be found in all sorts of games, such as counting points, gaining or losing lives, chance, etc. So if you play a lot of video games, you might have an easier time playing and understanding board games. You can definitely approach a game like from a like from a draft standpoint as I'm going to do this this like one story thing, kind of like set up like your beginning, middle and end, your rising action, your falling action. This is Martin Rodriguez. He's a game designer and senior associate producer at TerraVision Games, based in Bogotá, Colombia. But I think that's very important to understand is that games are more of this like weird agency spaces. Like the main thing about a game is not what story you're telling your players or your users, but is what actions, like what possibilities of action you're giving them to build a story or construct their own stories or tell your story through the actions that the player is performing. And this is the most notable difference between video games and other games, such as board games and role-playing games. Not the fact that video games are electronic, because you can also play board games online, but that the way they're written and the way they tell their story is very different. So in board games, you might not really write down like a story per se. What you really want to do with a board game is have like a proper framing. So for example, like in a game like Settlers of Catan, you guys are in an island, uh, like these are the resources that are available in the island. And what you're doing with rules is setting up 
like through player agency, through like the actions and decisions of the player, uh, setting up the moments where the player is going to tell themselves a story. While board games allow you to bend the rules to your preferences, role-playing games take it to a whole new level because they share the in-person social element that board games have, but they develop a language that is much more immersive in how they frame their story. Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games like give you a lot of framing. They give you a lot of setting. They give you a lot of like lore and myth to build the pillars of your game. And then it really comes down to your game master, like whoever's leading the session, of how much the game is story-driven or mechanics-driven. In role-playing games especially, you really want to try to build a story, like an emergent story with your players. Because even though like you have books that kind of guide you through adventures, and those books have like a very precise order of events are going to happen really it might come to the players that maybe in their play like in their interpretation of what's going on from the setup that you're giving they are going to try to tell their own stories as a like as a game master improvise like all this stuff out of the blue and that's part of the fun of the game of like having those story spaces that are, are very very player agency driven but like very very different from what you get in video games Video games tend to be much more focused on telling you a story, allowing you to navigate it freely, but within the rules of the gameplay and requirements of the plot. So the gameplay itself is communicating the story with all sorts of nonverbal cues. Sometimes the music might build up when you're near something important, or sometimes you simply need to find a key to the right door. And once people come together to play these games, communities are created and language develops all the time in these communities, beyond the game itself. So for example, like something dumb, like saying away from the keyboard, like AFK, which is a like a your bread and butter of like gaming experiences. Like I'm gonna leave like my game running, but I'm gonna just go for a glass of water or something. Like AFK, that's like a very, you know, like, and you might say like in Spanish, even if in Spanish AFK has no meaning at all, and the coolest thing about it is that these terms go beyond the context of games. And this also happens with other game-related terms. For example, personally, when I accomplish something difficult that I've never done before, I'll sometimes say, achievement unlocked. And of course, at some point, we all use the words, game over. And here's another example of a term that's very much a part of game culture. So, for example, in, in a game, you, 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 instead of saying, like, owned you got owned by someone you were defeated completely defeated by someone you're gonna say pwned just because somebody when they were typing owned they misspelled it and they they like inputted like a p before the the w and you get like this new word that kind of has a meaning of its own but it definitely comes from like owned and it's just like it is <laughs> just a typo and it's very internet culture it's very chatty like forumy and there's a lot of like the language that we use in games that comes from that. I love it when language is influenced by something as mundane as a typo. And of course, just as video games have developed their own terms and forms of communication, they also carry symbols from the past. The symbol for saving a game, it's still like a floppy disk. I know what a floppy disk is. I used floppy disk like in the 90s, but I know designers that are younger than I 
on players that have no idea why like this little square thingy <laughs> means save or even that you need to save games like you need to have save states like games now automatically save your game and another great example of this is stereotypical video game music a lot of people associate quote 8-bit music and sound effects to video games because that was a technology available in the 80s when they started to be massively popular now of course modern games no longer sound like that unless they deliberately want to make that stylistic choice like modern movies in black and white. But when hearing the terms video game music, the first thing that comes to mind is that glitchy electronic sound that also carries with it a lot of nostalgia. Like all these things, like obviously some, some things are gonna change um, and they're very tied to like how, like the, these internet cultures are developing. In a way, learning to play a game is like learning a unique language. Whether it's figuring out the clues in a crossword puzzle, meeting with friends to play Dungeons and Dragons, or building your own civilization on your computer. Each game has its own unique ways of sharing information. And it also serves as its own platform, where players can communicate with each other, or with their own thoughts. But you know what? There is one game-related saying that I've never really liked. The phrase, it's just a game. Because games are so much more than just games. They give us a chance to meet old friends or new ones, to improve problem-solving skills, and to just make our lives more fun. Because that's always the end goal, to have fun. But that doesn't mean we can't be very serious about it if we want to. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, we invite you to listen to our previous episodes, where we dive deep into translation and communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests, Will Nettiger, Jeremias Juarez, and Martin Rodriguez. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio Ochenta. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me, Luis Lopez, with additional production assistance by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, go to ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time. Hi, I'm your host, Luis Lopez, and I'd like to recommend another podcast that we think you might like. Science in Times of Crisis, a show produced by the International Science Council and hosted by Holly Summers, that explores the role of science and scientists in a world characterized by geopolitical instability. The five-episode series explores subjects such as conducting research in outer space in the Arctic, preserving knowledge in a war zone, and navigating the intricate world of science and diplomacy. Listen to Science in Times of Crisis on your favorite podcast app. Thanks.
Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.